Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great. Thank you very much. Nice to see you this morning. Wonderful to see you as well. So it is Infrastructure Week. Uh, there were jokes that it's actually infrastructure week. There are jokes throughout the Trump administration. They have infrastructure week, but, but it seems like we're actually in infrastructure week in as much as, as Congress is considering a enormous uh, plan proposed by, by president Biden for a major overhaul of, uh, American infrastructure, uh, uh, so-called the American jobs plan is, is what Biden is calling this. It's $2 trillion, trillion with a T, uh, that is supposed to majorly overhaul uh, American infrastructure. Frank, what are your initial thoughts on, on the Biden plan? Well, David, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the, the American Recovery Plan, uh, the $1.9 trillion um, COVID recovery bill that, that uh, Congress adopted that was sponsored by the Biden administration. And this seems to be the kind of, I won't say coda to that because it's actually slightly larger, uh, but it's approximately the same size. It's, it's the other half of it. Um, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the visit of historians uh, to the White House. And one of the things they, according to the media reports, discussed with Biden, President Biden was the uh, presidential leadership and the New Deal. It seems to me, in looking at these two things together, that President Biden is going for a very, very ambitious domestic program. This could be transformative. One of the figures we cited a couple of weeks ago, I think, in the episode was, you know, the cost of America's participation in, in the Second World War was about, was somewhere in the neighborhood, I think, of $5.2 trillion. Well, these two bills alone put us at $4 trillion. And this is a massive undertaking. And as anybody who's been on American roads or to an American airport, or we'll get to why this is so, but anyone who's encountered American infrastructure in recent years will know this kind of overhaul of the infrastructure is definitely needed. So I, I, I think I think it's a good thing. Oh, I think it's a, I, I would agree with you that, that, that uh, it's both big, um, you know, $2 trillion is a huge amount of money, but it's also something that is desperately needed. The reports that have come through uh, in recent years from uh, American engineers and, and civil engineers about the quality of the infrastructure in the United States have uh, indicated that, that, that there is a definite need for a major overhaul. We've got some pretty huge failures. We can think about the failure of the electric grid recently in Texas, uh, which is due in part to climate change, but also uh, slightly further back, the collapse in 2007 of the uh, 35 West Bridge in Minneapolis uh, that was due to, to both the age and to, to, you know, the usage patterns are radically different now than they were when the bridge was built. Yeah, I mean, back in the, the, the before times when we used to do things like travel for work, mm. <laughs> I I did a lot of traveling on behalf of the university for various reasons and, and for my own research and attending conferences, things like this. It's a great privilege and probably contributed in part to climate change, for which I'm sorry. Uh, however, one of the things I was able to observe was the contrast in going to various parts of the world. And, you know, it's very interesting to go to an airport and leave an airport mm. and encounter uh, the infrastructure in a particular city or place um, for the first time. And the contrast between, say, arriving at a place like um, Melbourne in Australia and, and uh, arriving in Los Angeles was quite striking. And so, so I, on a kind of personal level, it's quite clear to me that a, a, an overhaul of, of U.S. infrastructure is, is long overdue. Uh, and just to sort of highlight some of the, the important elements of, of this, this new plan, it includes not only 20,000 uh, miles of, of roads, both new roads and especially fixing old roads, uh, but there's massive improvements for for uh, passenger rail, major improvements in the electric grid, uh, the elimination of lead pipes. So dealing with situations like Flint, which are endemic in many parts of the United States, uh, but also some really some major shifts towards green energy to creating charging stations around the country, to creating uh, improved uh, solar and wind power to give uh, high-speed internet to, to Americans that don't have it. Um, 
And I think it's telling that he's the name of this plan is not the American infrastructure plan. It's the American jobs plan. There's a way in which Biden is trying to link infrastructure, employment, and green technology as all being part and parcel of, 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 of one package. Um, so I think that that's telling about, about where, where we are. Yeah, I think that's very smart on his part, uh, because I think if he called it the Green New Deal, and there are a lot of elements of the so-called Green New Deal in this program, but it, it, it would engender a lot more opposition and skepticism. And indeed, lots of Republicans have said this is just the Green New Deal. But I think by focusing on the jobs aspect of it, that's the way you get it through Congress. So I think that's I think that's very good as far as messaging is concerned. Yeah. And um, Yep, sorry, go ahead. Uh, and it, it seems improving infrastructure seems to be very popular with the American people. It, this seems to be one issue that is largely bipartisan in terms of public support for, for infrastructure improvements. Um, but getting it through Congress will be, be challenging like everything is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, everybody uses roads. <laughs> And so, I mean, the joke, the infrastructure we joke that we began with, or we certainly um, referenced in the beginning, uh, it became a joke in part because the Trump administration didn't do it. But the reason, the kind of uh, reasoning behind that joke or the explanation behind that joke is, you know, in 2016, when he was running for president, Donald Trump promised us, I think, spend $3 trillion on infrastructure. And the joke was they never got around to it. The irony is if they'd done that, it would have been very, very popular. Um, you know, this, this would, you know, so let's imagine we're at the equivalent moment. It's April of 2017 and president Trump has finally got his feet under the desk and is getting the grips with the job. And he, he proposes a massive in infrastructure deal. The course, first of all, it would have been good for the United States. Mm -hmm. It would have been good for the, the United States uh, and the U S economy, but it also would have been better for the Trump presidency. So the, this kind of joke about infrastructure week is, is, is revealing because, as you say, it is bipartisan. Although there's been a lot of partisan opposition, at least to the proposed the the the, the elements of the deal that you've you've just mentioned, um, but it doesn't seem to be taking root. I mean, infrastructure is popular. So although the the you know the 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 main thrust of the Republican attacks is to criticize some of the things that are included, like um, the money that will be invested in, in the care in caregiving as an aspect of economic activity and recognizing that caregiving is infrastructure. So Republic, some Republicans are saying, that's not infrastructure. Infrastructure is roads. It's cement, mm. you, you know, more. Uh, not really recognizing um, how popular this will be, I think. Could be wrong yeah. about that. Uh, I, I think, I, and, and, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, because I think there's enough in this package that, that Republicans are interested in that they may... We may not get the, the 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 exact proposal that Biden's putting forward, but we'll get we might get something close to it. Yeah, that's right. And one thing, I, I mean, we want to go back and historicize this a little bit. That's why we're here. One thing that seems pretty consistent to me, and having done some reading on the history of infrastructure for this episode, is one of the key themes in in the debates over infrastructure that always happens is what is infrastructure mm. <laughs> and. And people say, no, 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 that's not infrastructure. We're not paying for that. You know, whether, oh, you know, canals, oh, not gonna, that's too radical. That's, you know, rivers are fine. You know, that sort of thing. So there's always been a debate about whenever there's infrastructure, what just what is infrastructure? This is, this is, uh, so the, the, the current criticism of this bill or the early criticism of this bill is totally in keeping with, with the kind of history of the debates over infrastructure. Okay. So let's, let's, Historicizes some Frank. Let's let's go back to where would you like to start? Well, I want to start with the Constitution, David, because you could argue the Constitution itself is was arose out of an infrastructure project. And so let, let me explain this. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so uh, the early meetings in 1785. So we're talking a couple of years before the Constitutional Convention. Now, one of the earliest meetings that took place. Uh, in fact, George Washington hosted one of these meetings um, in 1785, concerned infrastructure and so-called internal improvements. And it brought together political representatives from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia to, with a common interest in improving the navigation of the Potomac River. 
And by improving the navigation, they're talking about, you know, clearing obstructions, allowing uh, the free transit of commerce up and down the river, trying to, seeking to link the Potomac to the Ohio Valley River Shed. And this, this was a major project in the 1780s. It's something that Washington and Jefferson collaborated on um, and really talked a lot about their goal. This is before the Erie Canal, of course. Their goal was to make Alexandria, Virginia, the most important port in the East Coast because they would link the Potomac to the Ohio River and via the Ohio River Valley to the Mississippi and the Great Lakes and beyond. And this would make Alexandria the great entrepot of, of the Eastern United States. Didn't happen, of course. New York City would, would eventually um, achieve that via infrastructure thanks to the Erie Canal. But to back up, in 1785 and 86, the early meetings that led to calls for political reform were originated over questions of infrastructure and the relationship between so-called internal improvements and uh, improving the commerce of the United States. And the result was the Constitution. Do, hmm. do you agree with that thesis, David? Is that, is that a defensible thesis? Well, I mean, I think one of the things the Constitution does is, is it does try to link together states in a, in a more coherent way than it had been under the Articles of Confederation. And there is this passage in the Constitution about building post roads, you know, which both in a physical sense links people, but also uh, in terms of communications, also ideologically links people. So, so uh, I'm not persuaded 100 percent that 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 the way the the way to read the constitution as an infrastructure bill but uh yeah we'll go with it as being an important element but there's there's certainly yeah sorry go ahead david i just think it's interesting that you know just the terminology we use that they used in the end of the 18th century in the early part of the 19th century they talk about internal improvements yeah in the 20th century it becomes public works and in the 21st century, we talk about infrastructure and it's all the same thing, but I'm not quite sure what to make of the changes in language and what that means, but. Uh... Hmm, interesting, I hadn't thought of it in those terms. You're right though, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, I think they're very consistent. You're right, post roads is an interesting element of this. Uh, in the early days of the Washington administration when Jefferson and Hamilton are jockeying for power, they're using infrastructure as their means of doing this. One can argue that Hamilton's report on manufacturing is a report on infrastructure. He's talking about improving the industrial infrastructure of the United States and the role the government should play in that. That's not unlike the subsequent arguments we get later, in, especially in your period. Uh, but Jefferson writes to Washington early on when he's trying to shunt Hamilton aside and he says, you know, the post office should really, you know, the post offices should be part of the State Department. And it fell, originally it fell under the responsibility of the State Department. Uh, and I should be in charge of improving post roads uh, because he's worried about Hamilton's power base. Hmm. Hamilton, in turn, says, no, 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 this is about commerce. This is about the Treasury. This is really, really important. And ultimately, uh, Hamilton will, take, will, will be given that responsibility. But there's a bit of jockeying that goes on over infrastructure. And this goes to another element of this, I suppose, that when infrastructure programs are adopted, whichever arm or, or organ of the government controls the that program and, frankly, controls the money associated with that program hmm. accumulates a huge amount of power. Pete Buttigieg, as the transportation secretary, could become a very powerful guy as a result of this. Is there a sense among the revolutionary generation that they should do infrastructure differently than as a consequence of the ideology of the revolution, that they should do things differently? The one example Jeffrey. I can think of is in Philadelphia, um, where they have a municipal water plan in 1790. Um, and they decide pointedly to do it differently than London's municipal water plan, where London's water plan was, if you wanted water, you had to sort of pay for it individually, which meant that wealthy people had water and poor people didn't. And, and I think Benjamin Latrobe, I think, was in charge of the um, Philadelphia water plan. He said, no, actually, we want to make sure that all the citizens have access to water. And if you want it piped in your house, we pay extra for that. But everybody has a well on their block. Um, 
I don't know if that's a specific, uh, you know, revolutionary model of how infrastructure works. Uh, I mean, I think, again, one of the common themes in, in throughout American history is not only the debate over what is infrastructure, but also that in terms of how it's paid for, it's mm. normally some combination of public and private wealth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's collaborative, sometimes it's coercive. So in Biden's proposed bill, for example, um, you know, the, first, the American recovery plan was basically paid for with deficit spending. The American jobs plan is going to be paid for by increasing corporate taxes, which were cut so, um, cut so much by President Trump. And so Biden, so Trump cut the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. Biden's plan is proposing to raise it to 28%, for example. So it's not going back to where it was entirely if this passes. But my point being, mm. there's always been some combination of public and private funding involved. And that goes back to the founding. In terms of doing it differently, I was I was going to ask you, okay, different from what? And the, the answer yeah. is Britain. Um, you know, in the colonial period, when they're using a British model, a lot of what we would recognize now as infrastructure were often privately funded or privately or funded through joint stock companies and things like this. There's greater state intervention. Again, it's slightly paradoxical. You know, Alexander Hamilton's held up as this kind of, along with Adam Smith, as a kind of founder of, of modern capitalism. It's not true, at least in the way the caricature works of both mm-hmm. Smith and Hamilton. Hamilton's in favor of state intervention in the economy. He's got no problem with that. Um, and, and the early infrastructure plans, or the, sorry, the infrastructure plans one sees in the early Republic are different from their predecessors in that there's greater there's a greater role for the state in them. There is a debate that goes on about just which part of the state should be producing the money. Whether, in other words, should it be state governments or the federal government? And there's a tension throughout the early republic over that particular question. And that's one thing, for example, where Jefferson and and Washington will disagree when it comes to improving the Potomac. Just a little sidelight on this, David, before we move on. So Jefferson and Washington are are active in something, Washington more so than Jefferson, but uh, in founding something called the Potomac Company, which is intending to build a canal linking the um, Potomac River to the Ohio River. And Washington is offered as a gift stock in the company Hmm. and by but it's he's offered that stock when the funding for the company is provided by the states of maryland and virginia so again this is a public private combo here and he doesn't know what to do with it and he writes to jefferson and asks him for advice he said well i can't be seen to be self-interested he's very although he's a brutal um um, speculator in Western lands. <laughs> On this question, he said, no, no, it'll, it'll appear that I'm self-interested if I accept this gift of stock. But on the other hand, it would be rude to decline it because I'll, I'll look as though I'm disdaining the states of Virginia and Maryland. What should I do about that? He eventually sets it aside for charitable purposes. So okay. this, is, this, is, this is kind of ties himself in knots over this. It's a, it's a kind of minor thing in the grand scheme of things, but it's an interesting it gives us an interesting insight, I think, into that world and how the the, the, the blending mm. of public and private and yeah. self-interest and public interest and the kind of questions that, frankly, people don't necessarily worry about today. It's very hard to imagine um, many people in the Trump administration being worried about the appearance of this self-interested behavior. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. anyway, so, that, I mean, that's, that's just a minor anecdote, which I probably never... We'll never get the opportunity to repeat again, so I wanted to share it now. So, David, tell us about infrastructure. So, you get a couple of things. Um, Jefferson in 1806 signs the National Road Act, which mm. creates a 130-mile road. Again, linking the it's a road this time instead of a canal linking the Potomac at Cumberland, Maryland, through to the Ohio River at what's now Wheeling, West Virginia, and that takes about two decades to complete. It becomes the Cumberland Road. It's a kind of important. It's a quite important infrastructure, early infrastructure project that links east and west. Um, Albert Gallatin, um, who's the Secretary of Treasury for, for, for Jefferson, issues a report in 1808 on public roads and canals, which is really is a kind of forthright um, endorsement of infrastructure. What goes, you know, when we get to your period in the 1820s, yeah. 30s, and 40s and beyond, tell, take the story up. Get Erie well, Canal. Give us the well, Erie Canal, David. Before we get to the Erie Canal, I think there's a real experience 
you know, moment that happens after the War of 1812, you know, in terms of a, a turning point in terms of thinking about infrastructure and, and, and internal improvements. And a lot of it is connected with this idea about how, how the new country can expand beyond just being on the Atlantic coast to being a, a, a continental uh, country. Uh, and, and infrastructure was a major barrier to that. Uh, that that if you were not on the coast itself, you were effectively cut off from from markets. Uh, there, you know, it, it, for instance, uh, in about the time of the War of eighteen twelve, it cost nine dollars to ship a ton of goods across the Atlantic. But that's also cost nine dollars to move uh, goods thirty miles inland. So, you know, anything that wasn't on the coast was effectively cut off. And so there's a major movement to improve that. Madison's a big fan of this. He talks about in, in 1815 in his uh, State of the Union address, he says that there's a great importance in establishing throughout his country roads and canals. And he says only the federal government can really do this. Like states can do stuff private corporations can do stuff, but there is a national, a role for the national government in, in promoting uh, internal developments. And this becomes a, a big part of, of what is uh, later called uh, Henry Clay's American system. Um, and it's a, it's a economic model that in some ways is building on Hamilton's vision of economics. They use in favor of a high tariff, uh, but uh, to protect American industry, but he's also in favor of, of using lots of the money from the tariff to improve infrastructure, uh, to allow corporations in the interior to, to grow. Um, so you see, uh, you know, lots of different manifestations of this private um, toll roads being built, turnpikes, uh, but also lots of canals. The most famous, as you point out, is the Erie Canal, well, which in 1825 connects um, Albany to Buffalo and then which therefore connects the Great Lakes to the Hudson River and therefore to New York City, which really opens up the interior of the United States in a profound way. It's 350 miles long, huge engineering project, you know, so thinking about how far that is, there's obviously lots of canals here in the UK too, there's one outside your window. Uh, but this is a whole order of magnitude bigger than that. You know, uh, 350 miles is basically, you know, here to London. So that's uh, right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very, as a project, it's enormous and one that can't, wouldn't be able to be financed uh, solely by by private en enterprise. And so it's a, a co cooperation between the state of New York and, and private businesses. And you find uh, throughout the 1830s. Uh, a whole series of canals being built, uh, and then later railroads. Uh, and government is fun and fun, really critically important in all of this construction. There is debate, though, about sort of how much role the federal government has in, in this uh, infrastructure, internal improvements, uh, public works, choose the term and, and uh, it seems appropriate to you. Uh, probably the most famous example of this uh, was the veto in 1830 of the Maysville Road Bill. Uh, this was a, an extension of the Cumberland Road that you mentioned earlier uh, that was supposed to connect two parts of Kentucky. And Andrew Jackson vetoed it. And he said, look, this is a road that's just in one state and, and therefore the federal government shouldn't have a role in, in, in building it. Part of it is an ideological thing about state and federal things. Part of it is he hated Henry Clay and Henry Clay was a big part of the road. And so like much of the things in Jacksonian politics is as much personality as it is ideology. Uh, but there really is a major push for infrastructure in this so-called transportation revolution uh, in the sort of decades prior to the civil war that only sort of then gained speed once you get railroads. 1862, you've got the Pacific Railroad Act, which is going to uh, sort of lay the groundwork for the transcontinental railroad and have the federal government distribute both money and land to help incentivize private corporations to build railroads. And so there, there's, again, I think this partnership between uh, private business and, and, and state and federal governments to, to build infrastructure. Um, 
and you see huge amounts of railroad construction, obviously, throughout the, the 19th century. What, what do you see in the 20th century, Frank, as the big turning points, big moments oh, in mean, structure? I mean, the, the, the biggest moments, the, the, I, I think there are really two, aren't there? And, and they're, they kind of get fused together. Hmm. Uh, with the Depression comes the New Deal, and the New Deal, yeah, well, we, the use of the phrase Green New Deal echoes back to the original New Deal, because hmm. the New Deal, the original New Deal, which is a series of New Deals, of course, um, um, was a massive infrastructure project, in part to intended to create work for people as much as anything, but also to improve the nation's infrastructure. And it was incredibly far-reaching and revolutionary. David, you want to come in? Well, I, there, there's one moment, though, before the New Deal, I think that we, that's worth talking about. Uh, and I, uh, the New Deal is clearly the, the, the elephant in the room. But um, there, there's a real federal investment in infrastructure, or at least interest in infrastructure, between the, the end of the First World War and about 1925. Because all of a sudden they've discovered that cars are a thing and trucks are a thing and the federal government needs a role in that. And there was a very, at, at the end of World War I, there was a, a very interesting project that was put together by the US Army. It was the Transcontinental Motor Convoy where they tried to drive across the country to check out the quality of the roads. Turns out they said the roads sucked. Like the trucks got stuck, like they couldn't drive. They said it was actually a, a problem for the U.S. military that the roads were so, as bad as they were. Uh, and they pushed for uh, federal intervention to improve the roads. They create a map. Uh, it's called the Pershing Map, after, named after General Pershing, the famous general from the First World War, who's instrumental in this. They plan out 78,000 miles of roads. Uh, in 1925, uh, there's a, a, a creation of, of the Joint Board uh, on Infrastructure uh, and Interstate Highways. This leads to the first federal highway system. Uh, this is where we end up with uh, things like Route 1, which I know you're familiar with uh, growing from Boston, and things like Route 66, uh, which is you know, a storied part of, of American history. All that sort of originate from this moment in the early 19. Uh, 20s, you know, which there's a real sort of investment in infrastructure. And the linkage with the military, I think, is interesting. Well, I think that's very interesting because the, the, the point I was going to get to after the New Deal was, of course, in the 50s during the Cold War, there's an investment in infrastructure, particularly the interstate highways, and that's really driven by the military. And well, military and here's, 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 here's where we wrap this together. Among the people who was on this caravan in... in, in Eisenhower! Eisenhower was on the caravan, and he points out in his autobiography, he says there's basically two things that inspired the uh, infrastructure highway system that they, they put in place uh, under, under his presidency. One is this trip he takes on the convoy, and the other was seeing the German Autobahn. And he says, look, I saw the roads in the United States were bad. We did something to improve it, but they still could be a lot better. And I see a model of what a really advanced highway system could look like. Uh, all right, but let's go to the New Deal. I think the New Deal yeah, is so, the most important antecedent for, for where we are today. Yeah, because the New Deal constitutes a massive intervention and, and investment in infrastructure by the United States government. And this is direct by the, directly mm. by the United States government in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you still in many American cities and suburbs can see drains and, and manhole covers that are from the New Deal, um, you know, if, if you read the writing on them. And, and so um, the New Deal was like just a massive intervention and, and really created the infrastructure the United States still have. It's crumbling now. It's a tribute to how good it was that it lasted 80 years, frankly, hmm. uh, but it needs renewing. But it wasn't just, I mean, it was roads and bridges but also, you know, we get the Civilian Conservation Corps planting forests. Again, a debate about just what is infrastructure. You get, of course, major um, uh, electrification projects, the most famous of which is the Tennessee Valley Authority. But, you know, the creation of massive dams, you know, to create hydro, hydroelectricity and so on, um, and, and electrification projects. The New Deal... I don't think its importance can be overstated in creating the modern infrastructure or what was the modern infrastructure of the United States. Um, I don't know what you've got to add yeah. to that, David. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what the New Deal is doing is 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 
redefining what infrastructure is, right? That yeah. they are, as you point out, they are building a huge amount of roads and bridges and dams. Uh, they also build 39,000 schools. They build 2,500 hospitals. They build 1,000 libraries, 2,000 firehouses, um, 12,000 playgrounds, uh, 1,000 skating rinks, a whole bunch of things that, that, that aren't railroads and bridges infrastructure necessarily, but are clearly fun, foundational to making communities work. Um, you know, and the electrification thing, I think, is, is very similar to Biden's plan to increase high-speed internet around the country. Yeah, it's, absolutely, it's, absolutely. It's, uh, um, so, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, you know, it's just, and the, and the d debates about that were very similar. You're like, okay, we get roads and bridges, but electrification, who needs that? And similarly, there are people today who are saying, okay, roads and bridges are fine, but you know, high-speed internet that shouldn't be the government. And, and yeah. I, I think they're very similar. Uh, yeah, and, and thinking about sort of the places where where electrification hadn't spread by the 1930s, it's poor communities. You know, it was in Appalachia. That's where the TVA built all these dams that built hydroelectric power. Those communities, except for the ones that were flooded by the dams, um, flourish as a consequence of, of, of having, you know, these are places that had no uh, running water, they didn't have good plumbing, they didn't have electricity, they really couldn't do anything besides subsistence agriculture. TVA radically reshapes that 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 whole region of the United States. The Rural Electrification Act created these community um, self-funded uh, uh, electrification uh, boards uh, in some ways, and 10% of the United States still actually works gets their power from these uh, rural electrification boards that were created in the 1930s. So they, they remain very important in terms of, of power generation for people today. Um, One of the interesting aspects of this, David, that, that just occurred to me is infrastructure. I mean, I, I'm thinking of the, the, the comment you made a couple of minutes ago about the cost of transport, hmm. you know, back during the early 19th century. And what infrastructure does, among other things, whether it's the Potomac Company seeking to link the Potomac to the Ohio and thus link the what we now call the Midwest to the East Coast, or these electrification projects during the New Deal, big infrastructure problems, help, uh, projects, not problems, help knit the country together and knit the country's regions together. And when they're successful, they that's one of the kind of really uh, fringe benefits of them that, that I think we uh, neglected our peril, frankly. I think, um, you know, there, were, there was greater sense of national unity in the middle of the 20th century than perhaps we have today. And so maybe infrastructure can help restore that because one of the things we talk about now is, um, you know, Americans are so divided over politics and culture and everything else. But if, you know, binding the nation together and making um, the nation work better together actually has unforeseen social and political consequences. Although, as we're going to speak about in the next minute or so, I know there were costs, there are <laughs> historically there have been a cost to some of these projects which have been baneful, and we need to be mindful of those. But uh, as a beneficial outcome, the hmm. infrastructure can bind the nation together. Would you oh, agree I, with that? Or is, oh, that, I, I, is that I think that's fine. I think that's that's definitely true, and it, and it improves the quality of life of, of lots of people, right? I mean, I think the the quality of life people who lived in the Tennessee Valley improved dramatically. And I think they, they understood the role of the federal government in, in, in helping making their lives better. They, they, they didn't see the federal government as an adversary. Their relationship uh, between the, the people and the government was in a very different place in, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s as a consequence of infrastructure. Um, and, and you know, I think people looked at infrastructure and said, look, we, this is something that we as a, a nation built. Um, so, all right, David, because um, I know this is something we need to talk about, something mm -hmm. you, you, you're, you're um, knowledgeable about, mm -hmm. knowledgeable about, excuse me. Uh, but just quickly decided to summarize. So we get this massive investment during the New Deal. I think there's a, that investment continues because of the military dimension to it during the Second World War and during the Cold War. We get the interstate highway system in the 50s, and you've already quite 
uh, expertly explain the origins of that. So we get all of this. What's the downside to all of this? So, so why, why should we be cautious? Because basically this massive infrastructure investment in the United States from the early 1920s mm. till about the early 1960s, we get a reaction against government uh, associated with the rise of the new right and the kind of uh, skepticism about this kind of public spending in the, we have in the subsequent 50 years. But uh, what, what's the problem with infrastructure? If you well, will? I mean, infrastructure is about making choices and priorities, right? You have to choose where you're going to build these roads. You're going to have to choose where you're going to build those, the schools and the hospitals, where these resources are going to go. Uh, and these are not neutral value judgments, right? We have this explosion of, of highway construction in the 50s, both uh, the private highway construction or state highway construction, things like the New Jersey Turnpike is in 1951. You got the federal uh, highway system created in 1956 uh, and other sort of state and local versions of, of, of highway systems created then. You know, they were created very much at the moment that the civil rights movement is taking off in which desegregation of schools is taking place and you know the values and the choices being made by people who are, who are selecting where these roads are going to go um, were not made in, in a vacuum right and they were not made simply uh, uh, you know to benefit all people equally but to, to benefit some uh, with some vision of, of what they wanted the future to look like. And there was a tremendous cost in many African-American communities when these roads were put in. We have numerous examples of, of highway construction in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that are basically going right through African-American communities. Some really awful examples in, in Baltimore and in Richmond, uh, in Detroit, and in other places in which Black neighborhoods were bulldozed to make it easier for white commuters to get from point A to point B. Um, you know, and and this is something that that the Biden administration is aware of. They've actually put twenty billion dollars in this plan uh, towards um, communities that were cut off uh, by historic investment. Uh, was the, the phrase they used in the, in the plan? You know, and the, the example that I'm probably most familiar with is the, the Haytide neighborhood um, in, in Durham, uh, North Carolina, where I lived for many years. This was a historically black neighborhood that was established after the Civil War. It was economically prosperous. It was, uh, you know, pointed out by, by W.E.B. Du Bois and others as being sort of an exemplar of of, of, of of a middle-class life for African-Americans in the South. And the city decides to build a freeway through, the, through downtown Durham to connect it to, to uh, the growing interstate highway system. Um, and they bulldoze 200 acres of an African-American community and build a freeway through it. Uh, so the community itself were all you know, uh, forced out. And you find sort of similar stories popping up in hundreds of American cities in which these roads are built for the benefit of, of, of white commuters and, and, and uh, not for the people who live there. Um, there's a parallel story about sort of the environmental cost of, of all of the road construction, right? The, the model of, of American society that the federal highway system uh, creates is one that's built on individuals riding in cars. Uh, and, and it makes it very hard in many American communities for people who don't have cars or who don't want to use cars to live in those communities. Uh, the, the car usage becomes sort of mandated by the infrastructure. Uh, and we're paying the price for that now, both in terms of the consequence for, for African-American communities, the consequences environmentally of, of uh, systems that are, that are built upon automobiles and, and fossil fuel consumption. And I think the Biden plan is trying, is recognizing that history. I think that's very important uh, and is trying to sort of create, if not, you can't undo those, the, that destruction, but I think you can think critically about it. Yeah, uh, I mean, goes right back to the beginning, you know, 
railroads and canals before them were and, and were built on indigenous land, of course. Mm. And so, so, so all of these internal improvements come with a cost. And I, I agree with you. I think the aspects of the Biden plan that take account of this are interesting and show a level of historical awareness and, mm. and literacy that I think is quite good. There was a backlash over on social media over the weekend, which you might have seen with because Pete Buttigieg, as the transportation secretary, made reference to the fact that, you know, racism was associated in where highways were built. And there was a sort of uh, caricature version of this that spread on, on the right with people saying roads aren't racist. Well, the history of this suggests that it's, it's more complicated than that. But I, I think this is a, I think this is a good aspect of the plan, uh, mm. taking account of this and seeking to remedy some of the historic injustices fostered by previous infrastructure projects so you know we we've talked about president biden's age one mm. thing i was thinking about in terms of this plan is uh on one hand it's very small p progressive i'm not making you know it's progressive mm. that you know there, there's all kind of, there's green energy in here there are charging stations for electric cars there's high-speed internet but there is old-fashioned infrastructure as well and i'm minded that biden like his predecessor you know, we, one of the comments we made about President Trump was this is a man whose kind of worldview was fixed in the mid-1950s. I think Biden's worldview is a little bit more modern than the map, but I still think it's probably early to mid-1960s. Mm. And he has a an old-fashioned faith in the power and efficacy of government intervention that's slightly at odds with the past 50 years when conservative dogma has certainly been in favor of small government and Democrats trending towards the center like Bill Clinton, adopted aspects of this in order to keep the bits they wanted. Biden seems to be hearkening back to an older fashioned big government perspective. A, do you agree with that interpretation? Mm. B, if you do, do you think it'll work? Well, I think there's, you know, there are elements about Biden that are, are very much rooted in, in his uh, infrastructure childhood, you know, there's the video from him from the campaign of him looking at a car from the 1950s and swooning over it. Um, right. You know, and obviously he, he has a, a very deep and personal relationship with the train uh, and he still gets excited about trains. And that, I think that's amazing because um, trains are amazing. But, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that that's happened uh, is is. The United States has been amazingly, and I think you're, you're right about this, that the United States has been amazingly neglectful of its infrastructure for uh, much of the past 50 years, and, and which is tragic given how important you know we, infrastructure is in American, uh, not only American economic life, but in American culture. Right. I think we have the ways in which Americans talk about infrastructure, whether that's in, you know, talking about Route 66, whether that's talking about the, the Erie Canal, you know, um, whether that's talking about Bruce Springsteen, where every other song is about being on the highway, um, you know, that there's a, a relationship and we can think of dozens of other examples of songs about trains and what have you. Uh, you know, this is a very important, I think, part of the American identity that, that um, in many ways is no longer fit for service, in part because the United States has neglected it in, in this move, this conservative move that's happened in the in the second half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century. You know, and the infrastructure that's in place now is stuff that was largely built in the mid 20th century uh, when the population of the United States is, was half what it is now. You know, these bridges are, are often designed for a amount of traffic that is a fraction of what, what they're being asked to do, and they're very old. Uh, and so I think this is a, a very much needed plan. Yep, I agree. Right. Well, we will see what the, the future of American infrastructure looks like. Uh, I think there'll be much debates about this in Congress, and obviously it'll be uh, years before all this stuff finally gets rolled out. But this is a, a, a bold uh uh, agenda for for the Biden administration going forward. Uh, maybe we will actually see see some real real changes in American uh, infrastructure. Right, time for last drops. Frank, what you got? I have been reading a novel by a man named Kenneth Roberts, David, and it's called Arundel, as in the town in Maine, not Arundel, as in the town in England. Lord of the Rings. Uh, um. <laughs> 
I don't know. Arundel's a it's a lovely cricket ground in Arundel by the castle in England. Uh, anyway, uh, but Arundel is about the it's about the invasion of of Quebec by the Patriots in during the American Revolution, and I picked this up because uh, there's a real dearth of decent. Uh, fiction about the American Revolution, and this is something as a historian of the Revolution that both interests me and and, and perplexes me. Anyway, Roberts is an interesting writer. He'll be familiar to people if he's familiar at all with for his novel Northwest Passage, which was made into a hit film in the, mm. with Spencer Tracy. Um, and Northwest Passage is a very very good book actually, and I read it as a kind of late teen when I was interested in uh, the history of this period. And I, I, he wrote another novel called Oliver Wiswell, which is quite good about uh, loyalists during the revolution. It's actually very, very good on recovering a kind of loyalist sensibility. Uh, Roberts was a very popular writer in the United States in the 20s and 30s and is largely forgotten today. And I'll confess to having been a little ambivalent about picking up this book because uh, Roberts also wrote a lot of, um, he, he had a regular column in the Saturday Evening Post in the 20s. Uh, in which he he routinely wrote in favor of immigration restriction, uh, namely keeping people like my grandparents out of the country. And so uh, I, he doesn't appeal to me on a personal level very much. But I picked this novel up and I've been enjoying it lately. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about it is, uh, despite his restrictionist views on immigration, which I suspect were premised in some level uh, on white supremacy, hmm. uh, he writes very, very sympathetically about indigenous peoples, about the Abenaki people in Maine, for example, um, during this period. And I've been struck by this. And, I, and, I, and, and in a way, that's pretty sophisticated um, or surprisingly so compared to the way uh, indigenous peoples were normally portrayed in fiction and have been portrayed in fiction since. Um, so, mm. so I... I I'm, so, uh, you know, people are not all good or bad, as, as we know. And, and this novel, actually, I, I can recommend this novel, even if I couldn't recommend having dinner with Kenneth Roberts. And I suspect he wouldn't want to have dinner with me anyway. Um, <laughs> but it got me thinking about historical fiction. And one thing we should that I meant to mention last week that I didn't in my last round, which is, of course, the, the, the recent death of um, Larry McMurtry, who's a mm. great really great novelist and, and a more significant novelist than Kenneth Roberts, I think, although probably not dissimilar that he wrote a lot of books that were very popular and whether they'll be read 80 years from now or not, I don't know. And his great book, of course, is Lonesome Dove. And I think Lonesome Dove is a great book. Um, and, and so I want to acknowledge the passing of Larry McMurtry. Ah. So uh, I guess historical fiction is, is the common theme in my now, observations. You mentioned the, the dearth of, of historical fiction about the revolution. Have you ever considered writing historical fiction, Frank? No. I mean, I considered it, but I'm actually, uh, my gifts don't lie in that area. I don't have okay. you. I've considered many things. I'm not quite sure my gifts lie in that area either. Um, yeah. I'm not creative enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to do it at some point as a challenge. I think there's, there's a, you know. So would you write under your own name or would you assume a nom de plume so you wouldn't undermine your credibility? Oh, you'll assume I have credibility as a historian anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, but there are like well-respected historians, of, you know, like Jill Lepore, uh, Jane Kaminsky wrote that, uh, you know, novel a few years ago. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll wait and see after I write it, whether it's, uh, whether it will detract from my, or, or improve upon my uh, reputation such that it is. What strikes me though, David, before I hand things back over to you is, there is no great novel that I can think of about the revolution. Uh, I mean, James Fenimore Cooper wrote a couple of actually okay novels in the, you know, in the early 19th century, but there, there there's nothing like Hilary Mantel's um, Place of Greater Safety, which is a fabulous novel that she wrote about the French Revolution, for example. There's nothing, I mean, Burr by Gore Vidal is provocative, it's funny, it's interesting, it's iconoclastic. I like Burr a lot, but there's no great novel about the American Revolution that I can not, think of. You're not going to put Johnny Tremaine in there? Well, Johnny Tremaine was one of the books that shaped my life, but no, probably not. Not Okay, so all right. Anyway, uh, David, what's your last drop? Uh, well, this is sort of a follow-up from our last episode. I want to uh, endorse an article that actually came out immediately after our last episode. I wish it had come out 
a day earlier. Uh, it's by uh, my friend Kevin Waite at, uh, in the Atlantic called The Forgotten History of the Western Klan. And it's about the, the, the Ku Klux Klan in, in the 1860s and 1870s, uh, but in California uh, and about the, the Klan's uh, uh, fight against uh, Chinese uh, immigrants. And so I think it's an interesting way to think about the connections that we talked about last week uh, between the, the Asian American experience and the African American experience in terms of uh, the, the violence and discrimination they faced. Uh, and Kevin's got a, a great new uh, book out that, that actually sort of is connected to this, uh, West of Slavery, uh, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental uh, Empire. And this essay is actually drawing on that book, uh, which uh, just just came out, I think. So wow, great! The article. Uh, speaking of of the clan in unexpected places, and mm. I realize this is the second clan, not the first clan. But did you see the article that was going around on about the clan at Harvard in the twenties? Yeah, I did. And so, you know, as you point out, that this is a, a different clan uh, in some ways, but the, the clan uh, you know has this major resurgence in in, in the nineteen twenties. That's not only sort of anti. Uh, anti-black but also anti-immigrant anti-jewish uh, uh so it was a you know a, a slightly different set of of um prejudices and, and, and backgrounds but you know this the second clan is is strongest not in the south but in like the midwest indiana had a huge clan yep. and and the clan was both considered legitimate and popular so it's you know not surprising that 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 there was a clan uh, branch at Harvard. There were, you know, Klansmen who walked through, this, you know, marched through the streets of D.C. in full daylight in Klan uniform. Um, so it was not something that, that uh, you know, it's a very different kind of entity than, than the one that exists during Reconstruction. But uh, yeah, it was everywhere. Yeah, I was. I was about to say, well, yeah, it's Kenneth Roberts's Klan, but that yeah, might but be unfair. I don't know whether Kenneth Roberts had any association with the Klan, and that's unfair. Um, <laughs> but th th there was a particular moment in which, which uh, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment was, was widespread and took a number of manifestations, whether that's uh, putting on a Klan uniform and burning a cross on Harvard Yard, or whether that's uh, writing uh, anti-immigrant uh, columns in the uh, Saturday Evening Post. So, yeah. have a moment. All right. Yeah. All right, David. Good talking to you as always. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.